Today, I'm going to preach the second part of that, if you will, standing firm in Babylon. I'm not going to read like I normally do this morning the whole text up front again, so you can take a a deep breath and uh, relax. I'm not going to make you stand up again, but I am going to read through this text as we get to it. So standing firm in Babylon, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. And I want you to think about something as we get started. Does anybody have any idea what the largest building in the world is, or even where it is? I heard somebody say it, Dubai. The name of the building is, the I believe I'm pronouncing this right, the Burj Khalifa. It's in Dubai, okay? This thing rises more than 2,700 feet. It's over a half a mile tall. It has 160 floors. That's twice the size of the Empire State Building in New York City. It's got an elevator that travels 40 miles an hour. Imagine that, 40 mile an hour elevator. It has an observation deck on the 124th floor, and it has the world's highest swimming pool on the 76th floor. But the thing about that building is, as tall as it is, and as impressive as it is, and massive as it is, it could never stand at that lofty height if it didn't go deep into the ground. It was said that it took over a year of just digging into the ground to lay the foundation for this thing to be able to stand and withstand the winds and earthquakes and anything that might come. The foundation, some of you that do construction might appreciate that more than just us. It sounds just like a number to me. But the foundation contains 58,900 cubic yards of concrete that weighs more than 110,000 tons. That's how that building stands firm because it has such a deep and rock-solid foundation. I think you know where I'm going with that illustration. So think about that as we get into it. I'm going to give you just a real quick, brief recap of what we talked about last Sunday, if you weren't with us or in case you forgot. So Daniel and some of his friends are part of this first wave, if you will, of captivity that is coming. A guy named Nebuchadnezzar is going to become the king of Babylon. He has a military conquest in a place called Carchemish. He defeats Assyria and Egypt. And on his way home, he swings by Israel. He decides to loot the temple. And he decides to take a few folks with him, 1,500 miles from home to a place called Babylon. And in this group are two guys that you will recognize at least from names in your Bible, Daniel and Ezekiel. And they, along with some others, go off to Babylon. He will come back two other times and take more people to Babylon. The third time, he will completely wipe out the city and destroy it. And so that's where we're at. We are with Daniel as a young man. He's about 14 years old when we first start reading about him. And he arrives in Babylon as a young man, seeing things, experiencing things that he has probably never, ever even imagined before. I described to you the city of Babylon last week. I won't go into all that again. But just know it would be like living your whole life in Seven Mile or New Miami and then one day landing in Las Vegas. You know, it's just a big change, a big difference of everything. And so Daniel is there and temptations are everywhere. But there were three points 
I did the old classic Baptist three-point sermon last week. And there were three points, and I don't know if you remember them, but I'll share them with you briefly. Number one, God is sovereign in our suffering. Daniel ended up in Babylon. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, it was because the Bible says God gave Jehoiakim into his hand. That being Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim was the king or the priest and king of, of Israel. And God gave him into the hand of Babylon. A lot of times... We wonder why we're suffering. God is sovereign in that suffering. We may not get the answers that we want, but we can rest confidently in knowing that God is not caught off guard. We, we say that all the time in our country. Why are we going through what we're going through? Well, I'm not God, obviously, but number one, I think it's pretty obvious we're being judged for our wickedness being judged for idolatry. And I'm not just preaching about those guys out there. I'm preaching about all of us in here who have taken the things of God with such a lukewarm attitude that have idols and preoccupations and sins that we refuse to deal with. God is going to judge the world in righteousness. But His people aren't going to escape standing before Him in judgment either. For different reasons, but we're all going to stand before God, either at the great white throne or the judgment seat of Christ. But one way or another, there is a judgment coming for all of us. And I hope we take that a little more serious than we do sometimes. God is sovereign in our suffering. Sometimes, unfortunately for us, but maybe not, if we knew the big picture, we might get swept along in the judgment for a time, even though the judgment necessarily isn't falling on us. It's falling on someone else. Daniel was just a part of this group. He served God, but the failures of his nation included him in the group that would suffer. But God was going to use him to make a difference. Church, we're caught up right now in the mess, in the middle of all the garbage that's going on in our country and in our world. And we can wring our hands, and we can get all bent out of shape, or we can say, I'm living in a time where I have an opportunity to make such a difference. There are so many people out there with no hope, with no joy, with no peace, living in sin and loving it. And we have a chance to show them that there's something better if we're willing to go. If we're willing to roll up our sleeves a little bit and do the work. But if we look just like the world and act just like the world, God's not going to be able to do much with us. He'll find somebody else to do it, and they'll get the blessing, and He'll deal with you. But you have got to determine in your heart that God is sovereign in your suffering. Number two, I talked about that God is selective in, or I'm sorry, the enemy is selective in his strategy. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, looked around and he saw a few of these young men, and the Bible tells us that they were of the nobility. They were, they were the cream of the crop. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to take those young men and I want to wine them and dine them. I want to give them the best of the best. And it says that he wanted to educate them for three years. What he wanted to do was indoctrinate them. That's exactly what the enemy is still doing today with your kids. The enemy wants to take the next generation because they can influence their peers just like he thought Daniel and his friends could influence the people of Israel. If I can win them, they can win their friends. And so he begins to try to indoctrinate them 
with the ways of the world and bribe them with the things of the world. And the enemy's doing the same thing. You can win your friends to Jesus or you can lead them straight to hell. But you can't do both. You've got to make a choice. And that doesn't just go for the young people. That goes for all of us. That goes for all of us. The enemy has had a long time to make plans on how he does these things. And he's good at it. But he ain't better than God. I know it's not good English, Tiffany, but I said ain't. He ain't better than God at that. Number three, the last one, Satan is subversive in his scheming. Remember, I told you that not only did he want to indoctrinate them, <clears throat> he changed their names. Daniel, Belteshazzar, and then Shadrach. These, these other three men became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of their original names meant things about God, the one true God. He changed their names to things that identified them with false gods. He tried to change who they were. He tried to make them forget who they were or forsake who they were in Christ so that they would become like the world. How much confusion today is the enemy trying to sow in our world? People don't know anything about what gender they are, what morality is, what truth is. I mean, everything is such chaos. And that's how the enemy likes it. He likes to keep everything so stirred up and so much discord and so much confusion that you can't hear the still small voice of truth that's right in front of you. All those things we talked about. And so we come today, I wanted to set that foundation for you because I want to do uh, a few points today quickly. I'm going to try to be quick, I promise. But I wanted you to see a few things beginning at verse 8. I just want to look at the first half of that to begin with. And I'll, do, I'll, I'll, I'll try to double down on my classic Baptist outline, but I'm not going to do three points, I'm going to do five, okay? So write these down, it might help you remember these things. Number one, Daniel had an unwavering conviction. He had an unwavering conviction. Look what it says. But Daniel resolved, or the King James says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He resolved. He purposed in his heart. Let me tell you something. He didn't make that decision when he arrived in Babylon. Long before they ever left Jerusalem, Daniel had a foundation in his life. Daniel knew who he was, and better than that, he knew who God was. And he had come to the place already in his life where he was going to be able to stand firm in Babylon. If you wait until the enemy is nipping at your heels to try to take a stand, you've waited too long. He's going to have a field day with you. You need to be ready, not get ready. You have got to be prepared for the day of battle. Not say, can, can you hold on a second while I go call Brother George and call Pastor Chris and get some advice on how I'm supposed to handle this thing? You need to have a foundation in your life. So that you'll stand firm when the enemy attacks. I'm going to be honest with you. And listen, sometimes when I say we, I'm not just talking about K. Russo. I'm talking about Christians. But if the shoe fits, wear it. I'm not going to apologize if something I say today steps on your toes or convicts you. I hope it does. I hope you'll listen to the Spirit if it does. And I hope you'll let Him change you. Okay? So I want to say what I need to say. The church today has been so lackluster about taking a stand when it needs to take a stand. 
And not just today. For a long time, God's people have refused to take a stand. Because we want to be liked. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to seem too weird and too out there. We don't want to be called a fanatic. So we just kind of roll along with it. We just kind of go with the flow. Fish that are alive swim upstream. You know what floats downstream? Dead fish. Dead things float downstream. It's easy to float downstream. But when you swim against the current, you're going to feel it a little bit. But we need to swim against the cultural current that has been destroying people and taking them to hell along the way. It's time to take a stand for God. It's time to take a stand for truth. Listen, I already know that I will be labeled all sorts of stuff if I stand up and say, the Word of God tells me that marriages is between a man and a woman. He didn't make a mistake there. That there's two genders, a man and a woman. He didn't make a mistake there. That abortion is murder, and he doesn't call it anything but murder. And I can go on down the list. And if I was worried about what people thought about me, or what people were going to say about me, buddy, I got in the wrong line of work. Because there's too many pastors that are too worried about that and they water down the Word of God. They won't say anything about it. Deep down, I know how they feel because they'll tell me behind closed doors, I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you taking a stand. I appreciate you. But they'll push me out in the front and they'll stay over there and say, you go, pastor, you tell them. But they won't stand up and say it to their congregations. They won't say it on their social media posts. And I'm not trying to just be divisive. I'm not going out every day and harping on those things just to start arguments. But we have got to make it clear where we stand. If you believe this book and it's in your heart, it should come out in your life and it should come out in the way you live. It should come out in everything we do. James 1.8 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There are too many people that are double-minded about things. Will amen, every once in a while, Baptists don't do that much, but every once in a while will amen in church and then get out there and zip it up. We don't praise God. We don't look like we love God. We don't talk about God. We're afraid what somebody's going to say to us. And I know there's situations where you can't. I understand you can't go in the middle of work and stand up in the middle of the shop or in the middle of your office and say, turn with me to John 3.16, I'm going to preach a sermon to you. I know you can't do that. But listen, people will know that you're a believer by the way you live, the way you talk, and the way you worship. If you don't ever preach a sermon to them with your lips, I hope you do, you're commanded to do so, but I hope that if nothing else, they can tell by the way you live that something's different about you. I hope they can see it on you. And we'll look at that in just a minute. I thought about that a lot today, though, about being a double-minded man. And I don't know why I thought of this. Sometimes I just think of weird things. I don't know if God puts it on my heart or I'm just weird, probably both. But there's a place called In-N-Out Burger. I don't know how many of you ever ate at In-N-Out Burger. I think they ought to have a church called In-N-Out Baptist. Because there's so many people, so many Baptists, not just Baptists, but I'm Baptist, so I'm going to pick on you. And If you're a Baptist, you're going to get it. In and out Baptist. We're constantly in and out. People come one minute and they say, Pastor, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve God. You're going to see me. I'm going to start coming to church when the doors are open. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to give. I'm going to serve. You're going to see me so active. I'm still waiting and I ain't seen them come back. You know when they'll come back? When they need something. Pastor, 
Can you help me out? Do you think the church can help me out? And listen, I'm not saying it's just a give and take relationship where we only do for you, I only do for you if you do for me. I don't care if I haven't seen you in years. If you call me and you need something, I'll try my best to be there for you. And so I believe the church will too. But it ain't about me and you. And it ain't even about me and the church and you. It's about what you're saying before God and how inconsistent you are with your life. And until you resolve in your heart like Daniel that you are going to go all in for God, it's just going to be cheap words. It's not going to happen. You can say it. You can get caught up in the moment. I can get you fired up. George gets you fired up. Somebody gets you fired up and you're ready to storm the gates of hell. And then as soon as it gets a little warm, you're backing off. You can't be in and out. You need to be in. All in. and Stay in. And fight to stay in. The enemy's trying to drag you out and you need to turn around and kick him in the teeth and say, Jesus bought me and I am going to follow Him all the days of my life. Daniel was resolved. He purposed in his heart. He had an unwavering conviction. Now look at this though. It's kind of interesting as we, as we go on. I'm going to come back to the second part of, of that. But all the king said was, or all he's going to say is, I want you to feed these guys the king's meat and the king's wine. The best is what he was saying to them. And Daniel turns around and says, I'm not going to defile myself with that. It's interesting that the Bible uses the word defile because that tells me that this was more than just a disagreement about food. That's a religious term. So I thought about that and I, and I, and I studied on it a little bit. And I believe the reason why Daniel made a, a big deal, why he chose this hill to die on when it just came to what kind of food he would eat, was because, number one, probably the food being offered to him went against the Levitical laws and the prohibitions on what he could eat and what he couldn't eat to obey God. We're not under that anymore, thank God, because I like to eat bacon and other stuff. Amen? Can I get an amen, Baptist? We like bacon. All right, if you don't, I'm praying for you. We like bacon. I like bacon. And so, I'm glad I'm not under that law. But Daniel was. And he said, because I've resolved in my heart I'm going to obey God. I don't care if you bring me a pound of bacon. I'm not eating it. Because he had a stand in his heart for the things of God. Number two, I also studied and knew this, that a lot of the false gods that they worshipped back in those days... It involved a big meal and a lot of that food was offered to those idols and those false gods and then what was left over was consumed. And Daniel had already resolved in his heart, there's one God. If you've offered that stuff to your idols and to your false gods, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not going to eat it. And now imagine this. They're all the way 1,500 miles from home and here comes the king's eunuchs and his servants and they set down in front of you this big old sirloin steak cooked just right at medium. A little pink in the middle. Some of you heathens like them things so burn up and then you slop, then you slop ketchup all over it because it's so nasty you can't eat it. I'm praying for you too. But this, this was a medium steak. That's a little bit too much. We, we got to make sure it's at least dead. Medium's good. 
medium is good. And he had all the fixings with it. And Daniel said, bring me the Brussels sprouts. Bring me out the... Amen. Bring me out the Brussels sprouts. It wasn't just about the food, guys. He purposed in his heart that he was going to serve God. He was going to stand on what he believed. The stake was there, and he said no. And Babylon will offer you all sorts of things that will turn your heart and your eyes and your mind away from God. And sometimes at first it's going to be hard to say no. But we'll see that his no became a yes in God's eyes, and it, and it was a blessing to him. You've got to be rooted. Have you ever went down somewhere where there's in Florida or California where there's those palm trees and you're unfortunate enough to get stuck in one of those bad storms or maybe even a hurricane? Anybody ever been through a hurricane when you've done it? Some of you have been. And you're you're looking out if you're still in the area and haven't been evacuated and man, what are those palm trees doing? They're bent straight down, aren't they? I mean, touching the ground. Boom, boom. Why aren't them things flying up out of the ground? The roots go down deep. They go down deep. And that storm still comes, doesn't it? And it bends them. But just like the song that Tiffany sung and Brian wrote, might be bent, might be bumped and bruised, but we're not going to be broken as long as we anchor ourselves to Jesus Christ. So, number one, Daniel had an unwavering conviction. Number two, he had an unshakable courage. Daniel had an unshakable courage. Look at the other half of verse 8. He would not allow the wine to be brought to him. He said, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. That could have easily been a death sentence. You don't tell the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth, that you don't want his food. You shut up like, like your mama used to tell you. You shut up and clean your plate. Right? And Daniel basically said, don't bring that to me. Bring me some Brussels sprouts instead. I'm not going to eat the food of the king. He took a stand. That took a lot of courage. But the reason why Daniel had the courage is because he had that unwavering conviction. And he had an unshakable courage as a result of that. All these things kind of build on each other. If you have a resolved heart and mind for God, you will have a supernatural kind of courage to stand when you need to stand. I have a plaque in my study that hangs over my door. And I read it all the time. It's Exodus 14.14. It says, The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. That word silent means to hold your peace. It literally means to become deaf. I thought about that and I've thought about this all the time. The Lord will fight. Let me read it that way. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be deaf. Deaf to what? Deaf to all the voices in the world that are calling out to you. That are beckoning for your attention. That are beckoning you to come and follow them instead of God. He said, the Lord will fight for you. And when you know that God is on your side, when you've seen Him come to the rescue, you will have an unshakable courage about you. You will be able to stand for things and stand against things that you never thought you could. Sometimes you'll stand alone. I know Brother George and I have talked about this before. I've stood many times all by myself. And I know George has too, and some of you have. 
I'm still standing. I'm still standing. And I'll stand until God calls me home. Because I'm standing on the solid rock. My roots are down deep. And I get the storm sometimes just like you. And sometimes I, I get nicked up and beat up pretty good. But I'm still standing. Because the roots are deep. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. So when all of that fear comes up and we don't have the unwavering courage like Daniel, we need to recognize and realize that all those voices have gotten in our head and we're no longer trusting in God. We're listening too much to the enemy. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. May I ask you a question? What would you do today or with the rest of your life? What would you do for God if fear was no obstacle? What would you do for God if fear was no obstacle? And then set your mind that fear will no longer hold you back from doing what God wants you to do. You don't have to live in fear of serving God, of obeying God, of following God. You don't have to live in fear to worship God openly. That's the reason why, and I kid about it, but in some ways I'm serious about it. That's the reason why most people won't worship the way that God leads them to worship is because they're so worried about what somebody in church might think of them. Don't worry about it. That's why so many people stay gripped to that seat rather than coming forward during the invitation because they're so worried about what somebody's going to say. You've got to stop worrying about that. You've got to let go of that. And serve God and do what God wants you to do. He'll give you an unshakable courage like He did with Daniel. Look at verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He had this conviction that was unwavering. He had a courage that came from that that was unshakable. And as a result of those two things, number three, Daniel had an unearthly protection. God took care of him. He trusted God. He stood for God. And God protected him. Notice what it says there in verse 2, way back when we read the other day. It said that God gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor. If we jump down to verse 17, God gave those young men learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God will honor your obedience. God will bless you when you faithfully follow Him. That's not a prosperity message. That's a promise of the Word of God. I'm not saying He's going to put a new car in your garage and fill up your bank account and cause your 401k to double. He might do that, but that's not the motivation of why you serve Him. You serve Him to bring Him glory and to point other people to Jesus. That's why we serve Him. And if you'll do it for that reason, my friends, you will have an unearthly protection about you. He will take care of you. He will provide for your needs so that you can do the things that He wants you to do. God doesn't call people and say, figure it out. Good luck. I'll show you, but I'm not going to help you. God works through us. And too often we're out there trying to do things in our own strength. 
The Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors, labors in vain. We're out there trying to build our own little kingdoms instead of building God's kingdom. But when we let God be God and let God work through us and just follow His lead, we will see things happen, eternal things. Not things that just last for a moment, splash in a pan, and then it's over. I want to see revival. I want to see revival in the churches of this country. That's where it's going to start. And it's going to start in the individual hearts of believers. But I don't want to just see people get excited for a minute. I want to see people get excited all of their lives about what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus is doing through you. If that starts to really sink in and starts to really happen for you, you'll see it. And you won't be able to get enough of it. Nobody will have to beg you to come to church to serve God, to get happy and excited about it. You will lead the way. And I told you last week, and I'm doubling down on it this week, I'm going to be happy about what Jesus has done for me. I don't care if I have to sit in a room full of sour-faced Baptists. I'm going to smile, and I'm going to have a good time in the Lord. I'm going to sing, and if I want to shout, I'll shout. If I want to raise my hands, I'm going to raise my hands. And I don't give one rip, Phyllis, if anybody gets mad about it. Because I'm going to have a good time because I'm glad what Jesus did for me. Because I know where I was before He found me. And if I was even here, I know where I'd be if He wouldn't have found me. And so I'm excited about what He's done. And I want to give Him praise for that. He gives an unearthly protection. Verses 10-14, through 14, I want you to see something else. Daniel had an unfaltering persistence about him. He wouldn't quit. He wouldn't give up. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Professional fishermen. That's what these guys did for a living. They knew what they were doing. Have you ever done a job so long you could do it in your sleep? And there's always somebody. There's always somebody that comes along and they don't have any idea. It's usually your boss. The boss is always the one, right? Right? Chuck's shaking. He knows. It's usually your boss or a new engineer or whatever you work in. They have no idea how to do your job. But they'll come out and try to tell you everything you need to do to do the job right. Right? Well, if I were you, according to the textbook, I would do this. You're like, okay. And you say, yeah, that's a great idea. And they walk away and you go back and doing it how you used to do. These guys fished. They knew how to fish. They didn't know much else, but they knew how to fish. And they fished all night and didn't catch one thing. Sounds like me. They fished all night and didn't catch anything. That's why I don't fish. I just go to the store and buy it. If you want to sit out there all night and catch your dinner, you go ahead. I'm just going to the store and get mine or somewhere where I can get a good fish sandwich. Ain't many places left, but there ain't as early. Look what it says. He finished speaking. That's Jesus there. And he said to Simon Peter, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Here's... He knew it was Jesus, and so he wasn't going to get too tough with Jesus, but he's probably thinking, Jesus, I've done this all night. I've fished this lake a million times. I know where to let the net down, and how to let the net down, and when to let the net down, and we didn't catch anything. Did you not hear me? But it's Jesus. Don't really want to argue with Jesus. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, so big that the nets are breaking. When they listened to Jesus, and they did it when Jesus said it was time to do it, the results were amazing. But Peter could have said, nope, we're packing up. I've put my tackle box away. I got my line reeled in. The nets are folded up. And we're going to the house. But he said, all right, Jesus, you said it. We'll throw this net in there again. And the blessing came, didn't it? Because he was persistent. Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest missionaries that has ever lived, missionary to China, he said this, and he lived this. He said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. I'm going to say that again. You didn't get it. Some of you just woke up, so I want you to hear it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. You can stand on that. You can, you can rest in that. I love the Scripture that says, Paul said to Timothy, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. Run the race. Keep the faith. Finish the course. You can't do that if you're an in-and-out Baptist. You can't do that if you're a double-minded man. Because something's always going to pull you off the path. You're never going to run. You might run for a little bit, and then you're going to run off and find something else. And the Lord may come back before you finish the course. Or worse yet, you may get pulled aside and walk away from the faith. How many people we see doing that now? How many people that used to serve God, love God, be all in for God, now they don't even think about Him anymore? It's a sad thing. But Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, or literally, to be pleasing to Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. I want to say this this morning, and I mean it, in love. There's people in this room, there's people watching online, there's people in every church, probably on Millville Avenue, all 500 of them. There's probably people sitting there watching online that used to be on fire for God. You used to have a passion for God. You used to serve God. You used to get excited about what God was doing. But somewhere along the way, life hits you in the face. Something happened, and it knocked you down for a minute. And while you were sitting on the ground, collecting your thoughts, trying to shake off what happened, you called a timeout. You said, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know where it came from. But I need to sit on the bench for a minute and catch my breath. That happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? The problem is, usually tw timeouts are about 20, 30 seconds. If you take a full timeout, it's a minute or two. Some of you have been sitting on that bench now for years. You've been in that timeout now for years. You've lost your joy. You've lost your passion. You've lost your purpose. And the enemy keeps telling you, well, if you get off that bench and get back in that game, you might get knocked down again. He's got you so knocked down right now and you don't even realize it. You're miserable. 
You don't do the things you used to do. And you say, I don't know what I need to do. You need to come and cry out to God and say, change my heart. I told you two weeks ago, I had a big long talk with God out in the backyard for a long time. And I realized that I wasn't unhappy. I was serving. I've been, you're not busy. I am every week doing stuff. But you can be all sorts of busy and still not be where you need to be. And I said, God, I want to do this thing with more joy and more boldness and more purpose than I ever have before. I don't want to just do it because I know how to do it. I want to do it because I see the finish line in front of me and I want to run with all my might for it. And some of you need today, today, to stop staying on the sideline, to stop in your pity party and say, no more. I refuse to spend another day calling myself a Christian and living as though the whole world around me is caving in and I have no hope. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to have an unwavering conviction about me. I'm going to have an unshakable courage about me. I'm going to have an unearthly protection about me. And there's going to be an unfaltering persistence in my life. I'm not saying if you hit this altar and pray that one time that boom, everything's going to change. It might. But if it don't, keep coming back. Say, God, I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep talking to you. I'm going to keep praying to you. I'm not going to stay on the sidelines anymore. Give me my joy back. Give me my peace back. Give me my purpose back. Light the fire again in my life. If you'll ask, He'll do it. If you don't quit asking and you don't quit going to Him, Every day. All day. I don't care how many times you have to do it. He doesn't get sick of you coming. He wants you to come. He wants you to ask. And He wants you to have faith to follow Him. Last one, I'm done. Verses 15-21. through 21. Because Daniel did all these other things, there was an undeniable blessing. They ate Brussels sprouts. Instead of a medium steak with a little bit of A1 sauce on the side, you don't need it because a medium steak's perfect as it is. But if you want to put a little A1 sauce in it, it's just like icing on the cake. All right? He said, I don't want that. Give me the Brussels sprouts. Try it for 10 days. I promise you that God will take care of me and I'll look better than the guys eating steak. I'll definitely look better than the ones that charred that steak to a well-done crisp. They're, they're going to they're be in the ER when they get done. Daniel and his friends come out 10 days later with the Brussels sprouts and they're buff. They're looking good because God honored them for taking a stand for what is right. What do people see when they look at your life? When they find out you're a Christian, do you look anemic? Do you look as though that you can barely put one foot in front of the other because you are just so beat down and discouraged? Or do they see something on your life? Do they see a difference? In the book of Exodus, Moses has spent time with God. He spent a lot of time with God, didn't he? I love this verse, Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, he comes down with the law in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Listen to what it says. Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone or glowed because he'd been talking with God. He was in the presence of God and it got all over him. And he was glowing. You ever talk to somebody like that? 
You can just see God on them. You can just feel God when you talk to them. Man, I've, I've prayed that every day. God, let people see you on me. Let people see you through me. Let them know that I've been in your presence. Let them know that. When you get in God's presence and you Holy Spirit filling your life, it's got to show on the outside. It's got to show out. I don't know how it can't. I don't think it can't. Because, and again, I, I don't want to be careful about this. I don't want it to just become an emotional driven thing. I don't want us to just get worked up for the sake of getting worked up. But I do want to say this, and I believe it, and I believe I have Scripture to back it up. I don't think that we should come to church every Sunday and look like our driver's license picture. I just don't. I don't think God wants that. I don't think God is honored by that. I don't think we should look like our mother-in-law came to visit and she ain't leaving. I don't think we ought to walk around like that. I think, listen, we have, sorry if the mother-in-law is there today. I love my mother-in-law. I do. I wish she'd come to church if she's watching. Where's the camera? If you're watching, Deb, get in here. But listen, guys, in all seriousness, we ought to be happy. I know life's hard and some of you are going through some storms and I'm not just saying grin and bear it. But again, don't let the enemy take your joy no matter what. God is sovereign in your suffering. I know you're going through tough times, but that doesn't mean that joy has to be set aside until the suffering ends. You can praise God right in the middle of the suffering. Daniel was doing it. They saw God all over his face. And so I'm, I'm going to close with this. I promise I'm done. Why does it seem like the world is winning? Why does it seem like the church is so powerless and the world is winning? I believe, number one, it's because the church has truly lost its joy. Or at least its ability to express its joy. Preaching, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There is an intellectual side to preaching. I have got to expound the truth to you so that you are able to grasp it mentally. So that you can make a decision with your mental faculties. But a head knowledge Christianity does nothing in the long run. You'll know all sorts of facts and all kinds of Bible stories and you might recite Greek and be able to talk about theology, but it hasn't done anything to change your life. Because that has to impact your heart. What you know has to drop down into your heart. The Jesus that I tell you about has to become the Jesus that you know. The Savior that we preach about has to be your Savior. The blood that we sing about has to wash over you. You can sing about the blood and study about the blood and the blood never hits you. The blood has got to wash you clean. And the church is so powerless because we've lost our joy. I hope I never forget what God did for me. I hope I never get tired of talking about Calvary. I hope I never get tired of thanking Him for how good He's been to me. And we come in so many times and we just look like we're just trying to get our hour in. Like we punched in and then you're just hoping I shut up so you can get out of here and go home until next week. We ought to have joy in our hearts and it ought to come out in our lives. We ought to have thankfulness and gratitude because God's been so good to us. You'll never win anybody to Jesus, no matter how good your theology is, 
if you don't have love and you don't have joy and you don't have hope. They're looking at you and they're saying, well, you're saying all the right things, but I sure don't see it. It sure isn't resonating with me because I look at your life and it just doesn't look like you have what you say you have. Ask the Lord to help you to live out your faith. To live out your joy. To live out the things that you say are so precious to you. Ask Him to do that. Phyllis, Shane, you guys come. I want to give you two verses, and then they're going to sing the hymn of invitation. John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Did you see that? I said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Tribulation's coming. Jesus said, in me you'll have peace. No matter how bad it gets. John 15, 11, He said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Whose joy is in you? And what's the result of that? Your joy may be full. If you've got the joy of Jesus in you, your cup is full. It will be full. Matter of fact, it will be so full, it will fill up and splash out on your neighbor a little bit. I hope that you get so happy in church that nobody wants to sit by you. Because they're afraid that you're going to get punched, kicked. You might, you might run them over trying to get to the altar. And that's okay. Because again, I think we ought to be the happiest people on earth for what Jesus has done for us. Daniel was in the middle of Babylon. And he was serving God, thanking God. The power of God was on him. And nothing was going to hold him back. Listen, life is tough. And the world is wicked. But church, we can shine our lights brighter than we ever have before. But we have got to determine that it starts with us. We have got to live out what we believe. And you've got to know what you believe. Stand firm and start living today. You've been in that time out long enough. Get off the bench. If God is calling you to be saved today, you come and be saved. You come and confess your sins and call on Jesus Christ to save you, forgive you, and keep you from hell. If you're on the sidelines and God is dealing with you about serving and you keep making excuses and saying next week and putting other things before it, today is your day. Say, I am tired of living this way. I'm going to serve God any way I can today. We're going to pray. They're going to sing. We'll stand and and then it's up to you. Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who I know is at work. My prayer now is, Lord, that your people would hear and respond. That they would cry out to you with a persistence. That they would get what they need and never be the same because they got it. In Jesus' name, amen.